Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When the cat's away, the mice will play. Welcome to the New Statesman podcast. This week, Anush and Stephen are away, so it's me and Patrick. We are joined by the MP, Steve Baker, to discuss the lockdown, and we'll be talking a bit about the week that Labour has had. So we are joined by a long-standing friend of the New Statesman in Steve Baker. I'm not sure whether he'd agree with that description but there we are i've anointed him a friend of the new statesman podcast steve welcome behind enemy lines as you might see it <laughs> well look patrick you've always been a great friend to me and um i've always felt thought that your uh, your coverage of me was was very fair but i'm not behind enemy lines i think it's very very important that we all <laughs> talk to one another across the full spectrum of opinion but but thank you for your generous introduction so a friend of patrick mcguire is this not of the new Statesman? no i am a friend of the new statesman i'm making my, i'm a, i'm <laughs> Accepting the anointing, I am delighted to be a friend of the New Statesman. You know, Stephen Bush leaves the podcast for one week and already Steve, Steve Baker and I are shooting the breeze. But anyway, we wanted to talk to you, Steve. Everybody who knows Steve Baker beyond Brexit knows you are a firm believer, a lover of individual liberty. And, and early at the start of this week, you were at the vanguard of Tory opposition, or rather conservative opposition, because I know you're not a, not a Tory in the truest sense of the word. That's right, I forgive you. <laughs> But you were in the Telegraph at the start of this week saying the the lockdown was, or the lockdown restrictions, important distinction, were absurd, dystopian, tyrannical, talking about them having no legal basis, saying the state basically had been too coercive. On the sort of eve of their the restrictions easing, looking back at the past six weeks, what do you think? Has this been a, you know, a draconian experiment in totalitarianism? Tell us, tell us, I mean, well, it's pretty clear what you think. Yeah, well, I think I think you've given a, a sort of fair characterization of what I said, but I did learn something about headline writers. I, I made the mistake of saying this is absurd, dystopian, and so on. But the this I was referring to was the worst excesses of poor quality enforcement. So I, I, I supported going into this lockdown because with all the information we had at the time... I, with a great degree of horror and reservation, it was clear to me the Prime Minister was making the right decision at the time to go into this suppression and, and lockdown. And my, the speech I made had got a bit of traction because I obviously couldn't hide the degree of feeling I, I, I had about it. 
but I made three points really in, in the speech this week. One was there unfortunately was a gap between the Prime Minister announcing the lockdown and the lockdown actually entering into law. So we announced it on the 23rd, it became law on the 26th. But in the meantime, police officers in various places had started to enforce the rules without a legal basis. And the government sent a text message saying new rules in force, which they actually weren't. So I I raised that not to embarrass the government, but just as actually to just say, we can't do this again. This has got to be a rule of law society where perhaps at the time of the press conference, sign the rules, but, but not allow three days to pass. The second point was just to say it's possible that these lockdown rules are not well founded in law. There's a judicial review is going to start, which is saying, I can get into the detail if you like, but it might be that the Public Health Act 1984 is is, is, is not actually a good basis for this kind of lockdown. And the third point was to talk about what happens when you get a gap. And actually there was a lot of consensus on this across the house. The Labour front bench were very good on it. If there is a gap between what is guidance and what is law, you can get some very bad policing. Mm -hmm. And that's what I was calling absurd and dystopian and actually some of it I would call totalitarian when you get into people worrying that they've sat too long on a park bench that's got to be wrong I've dilated a bit there but but this has been a huge experiment in state authoritarianism mm-hmm. but it's been a necessary one what I'm very interested in now is learning all the lessons that we can political legal clinical epidemiological and making sure that in the event of another pandemic, we do better. I'm really glad, Steve, that that you started by mentioning the way you quibbled with the headline on your Telegraph piece, because that was the thing I was thinking the whole way through reading it. I thought, you know, would it not be more appropriate for the headline on this to be something like, you know, I am alarmed by the misapplication of this guidance by the police, rather than calling for an end to these measures? Because as you say, your piece in the Telegraph is really quite a a detailed overview of the gap between the coronavirus legislation as it is in law and the rules around what we can and cannot do at the moment and then the advice from ministers on top of that which is slightly more stringent and then has been very heavily applied um, in certain cases by the police. I'm just quite interested in why you have been calling for an end to the lockdown basically rather than calling for the rather than sort of focusing your attention on how the police are enforcing this and and calling for clearer guidance on the level of of policing rather than on the ministerial level well the, oh thank you so as i should just say i don't want to be too mean to the telegraph because they've been very good to me and the headline writers will, will be what, what they are but i suppose it's a multi-dimensional thing it's partly what i want to say and what the media wish to report so there's always been a gap in the media for tory mp calls for end to lockdown mm-hmm. And I've been trying to explain that my view is fairly nuanced. We need to get out of this absolutely as soon as possible, but safely. We can't afford to be cavalier and we can't afford to be cavalier on any side of the argument. So we can't be cavalier about the economy, about the non-COVID clinical costs or about the COVID costs, deaths. So it's a very difficult moral maze. But I have to say, I mean, I am a great supporter of the police. The police in Wickham and Thames Valley have actually been doing a really outstanding job. I have had now a tiny number of complaints. Obviously, I don't wish to take issue with my constituents, but I am not alarmed. How can I put it? I am not alarmed by the two complaints that I have received. <laughs> so I'm very, very pleased and proud of the police in Wickham. But it's tricky because for a politician to get involved in what could be characterised as operational policing is quite difficult. But if we don't say, actually, hang on, 
policing's gone too far here then, then who's going to the, the public's rights must be looked after and how obviously you have a very particular some might say without wanting to sound pejorative idiosyncratic view on the relationship between state and individual do you think the pandemic and the way policing has been applied and and, and the lockdown measures might permanently change an aspect of the british psyche in terms of the way we relate with the state and authority. I mean, have you been surprised in the way that the British people have reacted? Do you think we might be more trusting, less trusting going forward? I think it's going to vary enormously with individual experience. I think if you ask me what surprised me, I've been quite surprised by the extent to which people have been willing to to dob in their neighbours. One or two episodes where, you know, it really matters that people comply with the rules. Mm. You, you know, having your married lover around without having any judgment on people's private lives, you know, that he was right to resign when he'd been party to making the rules. Professor Ferguson was right, right, right to resign from stage when when he'd broken them. And that's going too far. But the guidance about being out for an hour at one point, I think Michael Gove was talking about being out for 30 minutes. But I had an experience where neighbours were talking about dobbing people in for having been out for an hour and five minutes and you know it, there comes a point where that is a bit alarming you can see how east germany happened but overall what i've been really th- pleased with and surprised by it, the level of voluntary compliance has been really inspirational people have wanted to serve the greater good through their voluntary action and as you will know i'm a big fan of that in the round but whether it has a the, the, the long-term effect i think it will depend on individual experience I think most British people, when it's over, will be just glad it's over. Mm. Has anyone uh, taken you to task for riding your motorbike, Steve? Obviously, you you have very good excuses when you're out on your bike, but has anyone... I, I, ha- I can tell you, I have only been out on my motorcycle with one of the several lawful excuses. So I've been out on my bike to collect prescriptions for people, and I've been out on my bike to get food, basic essential food from the farm shop up the road, which just happens to have a nice route from here to there. I think it's about the same distance away as Sainsbury's, but the ro- route is better. <laughs> But, you know, if you, it's coming to something if you get specified that you must drive your 1.4-litre six-year-old Corsa instead of your nice motorbike. But nobody's taken me to task for using the bike, no. Not yet. But I have sat here listening to other people riding their motorcycles in a way suggestive that they were enjoying themselves, not serving others. <laughs> I wouldn't wish to judge, but that is why I put out my clip to say, bikers, sorry, you can't just enjoy your bike. It just shouldn't be like this, but it's of necessity. We're trying to save life, right? So, I mean, the fundamental point about liberty in the state, it is legitimate for the state to curtail people's liberties in order to serve the liberty of others. And so that's why I've been willing to support the lockdown. And just on a personal question, if I may, Stephen, I'll close with a political question after this. But in terms of how, you know, you're a man of great faith, has that been a comfort to you at this at this time? I think times of great suffering are always a great challenge to one's faith because you think, well, if there's a good God, why does he allow suffering? But yeah, I mean, there's no point pretending otherwise. I'm a mere Christian who prays, you know, regularly as as we do and remember all these things. But, you know, there's all sorts of challenges in the Bible, like the book of Job, where there's an enormous amount of suffering. So goodness knows what is going on. As a politician, I just try and concentrate on the secular. Mm secular matters at hand and uh if there's a god as i believe there is then the the big spiritual matters are for him my job is to do what is before me obviously last night steve you were on peston 
to represent the point of view that is calling for an end to lockdown and to get back to work, yeah. which obviously lots of people agree with you and lots of people really vehemently disagree with you and get quite upset by what they perceive as an implication that you're happy to accept more suffering, more damage from this virus, potentially loss of life from getting the economy up and moving. And I just wonder, you know, all those people on Twitter, I, I would assume that you don't engage too much with people on Twitter, but what do you, what's your argument when people find this approach to getting the, the economy back up and moving a bit hard to take? No, if, when people mean it sincerely, then I can respect their point of view. I think what's hard is when people call you a murderer or whatever, and it's just an insult. Mm-hmm. And what I would say to them is, the lockdown continuing has human costs. Even if you don't care about the economy, which I think we, we must, I think it's reckless and cavalier and irresponsible not to care about the economy. I think it's a good idea that we're able to pay for the NHS and pay for care homes and pay for benefits and bailouts and all the other things that we need. And that means the economy's got to flourish. We can't afford to lose a third of the economy in a quarter and have the worst recession in 300 years and just pay for it by printing money. It's a disaster if we do that. Mm. Just concentrating on that economic bit, that would have really profound humanitarian consequences. And I'd say to people, please open your eyes to what it would actually mean to just rely on currency printing and bailing ourselves out. It's, that's, that, that's like, that's the death of our society to do that. So that's on the economic side. If we have a very long, if we have a very long lockdown, fearfully, and end up leaning on borrowing and currency debasement to pay for it, that would be a, dis- a genuine disaster. But the other thing, even if people, are, if people aren't interested in the economy, I'd say, please, please have a care for the people who aren't presenting themselves to hospital at the moment with non-COVID illnesses, because I understand that admissions for other conditions like heart attack and stroke, cancer has been talked about a lot, but that those, those A&E admissions have been collapsing and it's because people worried they might have just had a stroke aren't presenting. Well, that, that's terrible because we've got good treatments for heart attack and stroke now. I w- would warrant that in a, f- in a few weeks to months time, we'll find that there are people whose whole lives are going to be scarred because they didn't go for stroke treatment. So when people are, if people are caricaturing me for wanting to get the economy going it's not just the economy it's restarting the nhs and whether it's the economy or the nhs in the end it's all about human flourishing and wishing the best for everybody but people have also got to keep in perspective that if you're a person with no pre-existing conditions of working age this disease is mild to moderate for most people we've got to shield the vulnerable and we've got to protect everybody from the downside risks that i've articulated Steve, obviously, part of the reason you're here, part of the reason you're on a lot of people's radar is, is Brexit. And yeah, I'm afraid so. <laughs> which has happened, but the process of a trade deal is, is, is still underway, just about. And at the end of next month, Boris uh, Johnson has to say whether he wants to extend the transition period or not. I suspect we know the answer to this, but has the pandemic and the demands it's placed on the state changed your mind on that question of whether to extend the transition at all? It, it has not changed my mind to answer the question directly. But I have to say, one of the things that surprised me about what the government decided to do is it has put into law that the transition may not be extended. It's, it's unlawful for a minister to seek to extend the transition. That is Boris's choice. This is all on Boris now. He's got a majority of 80. If he wants to extend the transition, he'll have to bring forward primary legislation to amend the act to enable it to make it possible to, to, to extend. And there's no sign of him wanting to do that. So we won't extend but I don't think it's in the public interest to extend. We've just had 
several years of uncertainty, it's time to bring certainty. We're going to be on a free trade agreement basis with the EU. That has some implications at the border and companies should get ready to trade on an FTA basis from December. Do you, do you worry they might not be ready given the demands that have been placed on them during lockdown? They should have been ready long since because we could have gone out in principle with without a withdrawal agreement and a transition period. But border readiness has become one of those sores where there's been a con- constant foot dragging. I am losing patience with foot dragging about border preparedness. I have long since advocated that there should be a minister of state for the border and they, sh- they should have a responsibility across government for all of the things that happen at the border. HMRC, immigration, DEFRA, there's a whole bunch of stuff across multiple departments. We should have a minister for the border. It should be Marcus Fish because he's brilliant at all of the relevant things, really knows the detail. And that person should be responsible for really accelerating the border. But I honestly don't think it's in Europe's interest. The other thing I'd say to people on the other side of the argument, please have a look at what's going on in Europe right now. We, we could end up just parked in the transition for a long time, unable to control our own laws while the European Union goes through an undoubted trauma of trying to sort out what they're going to do. They've ended up with a federal currency, but then they've reverted to a kind of nationalism to try and cope with the crisis. And I I, I don't want us to be just subjected as a non-member state to whatever the side effects are of them sorting themselves out. I I just don't see how that's in our interests. Well, it's a time of profound change in the UK and Europe. Steve, thank you for joining us to share your views on, on both. Well, Alva, Patrick, thank you very much indeed for having me on. It's great to be a friend of the New Statesman. And long may it continue. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Patrick, we've just taken a, a tea break after our discussion with Steve Baker what did you make of it? Well, I think, you know, as, as an aspiring Steve Baker biographer and the NS's resident Steve Baker expert, I'd say that was peak Baker in the um, the nuances in in a number of directions. And it's always interesting because obviously Steve, Steve Baker has been written up as the sort of, and he was the the, the chief organiser and the tribune of, of, of hard Brexit, or certainly opposition to Theresa May's Brexit deal on the Conservative benches, as listeners have heard, he is being written up as the chief opponent of lockdown on the Conservative benches. When that's not that's not strictly true, as as is obvious, you know, he is one of the Tory MPs who said, yes, lockdown has been necessary. If anyone has got anything wrong, it's the police. But the question is whether, and it's the, the perennial question of this debate, is to what extent does prioritising the economy mean prioritising a, you know, hastening a second wave? And the really interesting thing is, Steve Baker that spoke about there was the the impact on the NHS in terms of long-term health implications of people who have other 
conditions not being able to seek treatment or being dissuaded from seeking treatment so i think it was a really interesting conversation in terms of the quite dizzying number of policy trade-offs and obviously there were there were flashes of steve baker the the free marketeer in in terms of talking about his opposition to quantitative easing but yeah i think it was a you know a conversation whose complexities show not only that steve baker is a one of the most interesting thinkers on the right, um, but also just how many policy questions and policy levers the government has its hands on and has its eyes on and how pulling one might solve a problem in isolation but cause other problems. And yeah, it's just I wouldn't want to be a public policymaker right now because there are the extent to which there are no good options is quite something. Obviously, it all depends on what you, you know, this is the week where obviously we have become the first country in Europe to pass 30,000 deaths. And we have the highest death toll in Europe and the second highest in the world. Obviously, there are methodological debates over whether comparisons are useful. The author of the Guardian piece that ministers keep citing says, yes, we can certainly make them. And by any measure, they're not good for the UK. You know, in, in, in the week that we've had that death toll confirmed and... Now, opinion within the Conservative Party is four square behind loosening where at a time when a majority, a clear majority of the public are pro things carrying on as they are in terms of lockdown and their expectations of the state will solve the problems of the economy at the end of all of this. It's very tricky. It's tricky for everyone. But I do think maybe there is a chance that the Conservative Party is responding to public opinion that doesn't necessarily exist or certainly not in plurality form I don't know what you think I I think hopefully listeners will find it helpful as a way of familiarizing themselves with one of the best examples of someone of that kind of thinking because I, I I was aware when when Steve Baker was speaking to us that probably our listeners are more familiar with the argument against easing lockdown and we know that as you say public opinion is broadly in favor of keeping the lockdown measures but as you say certainly my overriding feeling when you engage with the specific arguments presented by Steve Baker is that there's a lot to agree with and a lot that everyone agrees with I mean we've done a lot of reporting at the New Statesman on the impact on the NHS of people not visiting hospitals and did a very good report on that and his criticisms the extensions of of the surveillance state or like the sort of the misapplication of certain lockdown measures by the police I think you know certainly a lot of liberal democrat listeners will agree with that but obviously I mean there was a point where he mentioned how we need to bear in mind that this is a mild illness for a lot of people which I imagine will still not sit very well with lots of people especially those who have first-hand experience of the virus and um, as you say it's a policy quagmire and one that I think is above my pay grade almost to to comment on because there are so many trade-offs and it's worth repeating that it isn't just a sort of a right-wing idea that you need to get the economy back up and moving like we know from the impact of the recession and subsequent austerity measures that there are huge health impacts from deprivation on people and so we need a an economy that is back on its feet in order to alleviate some of the worst public health impacts longer term of this crisis. 
A point I found interesting was was when he was talking about the there was overlap between his own position and the position of the Labour front bench, and mm. it seems to me, I mean, this is you know perhaps taking an inch and, and running a mile, but it seems to me there obviously you can make a civil libertarian critique of lockdown or especially its application, and that was obviously Steve Baker's you know main gripe is with the application of lockdown by hyperactive arms of a, a coercive state and that's certainly a compelling you can make that from that same critique from the liberal left and it seems to me i wonder whether you know we are seeing politics maybe not not so much realigning but it's interesting that on both that and also in terms of to just pluck another issue not quite out of thin air but relations with china are also an issue that sort of have are coming to dominate our politics, but are also sort of straddling a traditional left-right divide. Obviously, the the lockdown has become a, a culture war in the easing the lockdown and maintaining the lockdown. If you look on Twitter or similar opinions, sort of seems to harden along left-right lines. But in terms of say relations with China, you can make an equally compelling argument for a sort of whatever the opposite of a detente is with the Chinese state on human rights grounds or whatever. I mean, this is a debate that's playing out within the Conservative Party. It's actually uniting the wings of the Conservative Party. You have the sort of Carrie Simmons position, which is wet markets or an abuse of abuse of animal welfare, et cetera, et cetera. You can have the the human rights position, you know, in terms of the state's attitude to dissenters and the terrible treatment of the, the Muslim minority in China. And also, obviously, you have the, the sort of conventional na- na- national security policy, ex- policy exchange defence position on the right. You know, there, there are sort of not quite echoes of that debate in terms of lockdown, but there are, there are considerable overlap. And actually, these... And especially, you know, in terms of the the NHS question as well, in terms of capacity and also, but also the impact of this pandemic and the government's messaging on people with other conditions, you can't put our responses neatly into into boxes. And it's especially after two years, three years, even of very culture warsy, almost half a decade of very culture warsy Brexit debate. It's um, it's a different kind of political discourse, and it's one I'm not quite sure. Because if you listen to Steve Baker's gripes about how they headlined this piece in the Telegraph, hearing Steve Baker on lockdown as dystopian, absurd, totalitarian or whatever, mm. you imagine that is some sort of like slightly deranged screed about how nobody should be locked up when actually it was a nuanced argument about the application of state power and ministerial overreach rather than an argument against the fact we've been in lockdown or whether lockdown was necessary for the past six weeks or not. Yeah. So it's an interesting question whether our media is equipped to deal with a, a debate this nuanced. And I do think that maybe the unfortunate situation of, of Steve Baker means that I think he is forced to or he allows himself to be held up as an example of quite an extreme position and he's wheeled onto programmes like Peston to be a sort of battering ram and I mean the fascinating thing with that Telegraph article is that he basically he doesn't call for a lockdown at all and notably when we asked him about it on on the podcast earlier he didn't disagree that actually it was it was the case that he would like the police to to have enforced these measures differently and he thinks Mm. that there are legal issues with the way they were implemented and he's really not been talking about an end to lockdown at all. Mm. Yeah, it is very interesting. It's a structure. I guess it's as as we often say on this podcast, it's a structural problem with the media 
as is currently constituted, and also in terms of an imagined public opinion. Public opinion, to segue seamlessly onto our next topic of conversation, is a topic the Labour Party is increasingly preoccupied with. Mm. Earlier this week, Bridget Phillipson, the Shadow Chief Secretary to the Treasury, wrote to her colleagues in the Shadow Cabinet on the front bench, warning them that they weren't to come up with policy initiatives that required new spending without clearing it with her first. But the more interesting thing, obviously that was written up as, you know, the new broom in Lotto is stamping his authority on the party when veterans of John McDonald's operation and indeed Ed Miliband and Ed Balls's operation pointed out not unreasonably they did the same. It's not unusual for uh, opposition leaderships to demand that they are across policy development. But the really interesting thing about that letter was that there's a conscious effort, one, to steer Labour front benches away from making big spending commitments. And two, a really telling section was Bridget Phillipson saying, public opinion at this time is really malleable and Labour has to be aware of its, it might shift suddenly once the crisis in its current phase has abated. And the Tories, just as Rishi Sunak, the free marketeer, was as capable as coming out one evening in March and saying, I'm now going to pay 80% of everybody's wages. He's just as capable six weeks later of saying, well, you're all addicted to this wage subsidy. I'm going to have to wean you off it. And in six months' time, Boris Johnson might come out and say, as much as he at PMQs was talking about no return to the A word, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and the Tories are clearly not in a space where cabinet ministers are going to talk about austerity or tightening belts or whatever, Labour is aware that the Tories are and, and the government are just as capable of spinning around tomorrow and saying, actually, what's required now is a dose of austerity to correct the public finances after this temporary period of, of profligacy, as they as they might see it, uh, necessary, but nonetheless profligate profligacy. And we're going to have to get us back on the straight and narrow and look at Keir Stormer over there talking about splashing the cash more. So yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Well, it's, it's interesting. Um, I wonder if you agree with this, but over the past week or so, I've certainly felt like it's become much clearer what Labour's game is under Keir Starmer. Because for a while, during the leadership race, we talked a lot on the podcast about how there was a sort of mystery around whether Keir Starmer really was who he said he was, whether he means it, whether he's sort of secretly quite, you know, more right wing than we expect or whether he is you know real Corbynite there were there was sort of a sort of inexplicable level of mystery around what his approach would be and now I think it's become quite straightforward at least to me that like this is just a a soft left administration or a soft left leadership that broadly does want to continue the good policy ideas of the Corbyn project but put a huge emphasis on credibility and on unity so none of them will bandy around the term soft left and we'll talk about just being labor but as you say with Bridget Phillipson's letter to the party they they'll pay much closer attention to being seen to be responsible responsible in opposition making responsible policy pledges do you sort of agree that the shape of of this new leadership is becoming clearer. Yeah, I do actually, and this is partly because this is partly a consequence of having had more opportunities to see Keir Starmer's messaging be played out again and again and again. So the really telling thing at the past couple of PMQs 
he's been laboring the concept of slowness. That's the charge he wants to stick to the government. The government has been slow on testing, slow on PPE, slow on this, slow on that, et cetera, et cetera. And obviously all of his contributions are still peppered with expressions of solidarity and praise for the government on the increasingly few aspects of this that it's getting right. But despite the charge of slowness, the interesting thing, and this is going to be a live question, as lockdown is eased and as people continue to social distance, but there are more people on the streets, there are more people in parks, the level of human contact within the population and in the community increases. How does Labour play it? And also how does public opinion shift if there is, if the easing of lockdown, which has been almost university welcomed in the uh, mass circulation press and among the Conservative Party, how does Labour respond if that goes badly? Uh, And Mm. there is, you know, on current evidence, quite a high chance of of it going badly. I guess the question is, what does Keir Starmer do when there is nothing to praise the government for? Is it just a case of delivering your attack lines? More in sorrow than in anger. Yeah. More in sorrow than in anger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. More in sorrow than in anger. Because it's interesting, because at what point, you know, because at every point, you know, there has been something to praise or something to pretend to praise the government for. But if this phase of lockdown easing goes badly, then and public opinion shifts significantly uh, you wonder because you know the the calculation lotto has made is clearly that and this is borne out by polling that people at a time of national crisis want to be brought together but if public opinion shifts significantly to blame the government i don't know the the, and this is the, the question that's playing out on the left is that do you have to be the midwife of that shift in public opinion or does it just happen because obviously after Black Wednesday, John Smith and then Tony Blair were ahead in the polls basically forever. Mm-hmm. It's quite interesting because that's, 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 I've, I've seen both of these arguments knocking around the internet this week. The first is that, and this was made sort of under Corbyn's leadership, was that Tony Blair wasn't all that because Labour had a commanding poll lead after Black Wednesday anyway. And I saw a tweet early in the week that said, Keir Starmer, the neo-Blairite, which is, obvious nonsense but whatever has misunderstood Mm -hmm. Blairism because Blairism was all you know in its early phase was all about attacking a failing Tory government so you know that that, Mm. that's the that's the interesting question will if public opinion shifts to blame the government does Keir Starmer have to do anything or will they not blame the government without Keir Starmer telling them that the government is to blame I think that's such a pertinent parallel my own instinct would be um that you're right that he can continue with his more in sorrow than in anger approach. If even if he can't begin with some some words of praise for the government, I think if if he looks as though it's it it gives him great pain to have to do this in a very he- headmasterly way, I think that that is absolutely the right tone that seems to convey a responsible approach to this crisis while still highlighting the government's flaws. And in terms of the interpersonal dynamic, I think that works very, very well. It's very uncomfortable for Boris Johnson, who really did seem to be on the back foot in those exchanges, especially with a a chamber to play to and be funny too. But he really did seem to be like a a schoolboy who was being chastised. So I suppose you can let other people get angry if the response worsens and there are certain problems but you can continue with your regretful approach 
You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Patrick Maguire, and my fellow political correspondent, Alva Ray. It's produced by Nick Hilton, and the theme music is Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.